good to have you here uh, with us as we're in week 12 of this study of the book of Romans. Now, um, this book, this letter that Paul wrote to this church that he didn't plant, he hadn't met in Rome, uh, has been impacting lives for 2,000 years. It just reminds you of something I said early on. That about 500 years ago, I mean exactly 500 years ago, there was a, a, a monk named Martin Luther who was struggling in his faith, and the message of the book of Romans transformed his thinking, his faith, his life, and it so rocked his world that he wrote this document and in, in October of, of, uh, of 1517, 500 years ago this fall. He nailed this, this document to the, the door in Wittenberg in Germany, and he was not trying to split the church. He was trying to correct the church, say, here's the truth of God's word. And it forever changed the trajectory of Christendom. It started the protest, the Protestant movement, and opened up this Lutheran church, which then became, you know, uh, where our roots come from, uh, from the Catholic church. And then just over 200 years later, a man named John Wesley was wrestling with his own faith and feeling dead inside. And he was at a Moravian meeting and where they were, reading, um, they were reading Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans. And the truth, even in the introduction, so warmed his heart that in 1738, I believe, it was a transformation for him. And what happened with Charles and John Wesley and what God did through them was this, sparked this incredible revival and began the Methodist church. And about 200 years later, in the early 40s, 1944, 1945, in Acme, Washington, in a little church with a Sunday school teacher that remains unnamed, we don't know his name, he spoke to a young boy who was eight or nine years old, and he gave him a little Gideon's New Testament, and he underlined Romans 1.16, and in the front he said, always hold on to Romans 1.16. And that little boy grew up, and he is my father-in-law. And this summer, we've been impacted by this book. For 2,000 years, this book and the message and the truth in it has been changing lives. So early June, when my father-in-law was over, he said, what are you preaching on? I said, well, we're starting a, a study on the book of Romans. He says, are you covering Romans 1.16? I said, absolutely. And he told me that story. And he said, I've never forgotten. This is 70-some years ago. He said, I've never forgotten. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who would believe, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. And then Paul follows up with verse 17, which has been the basis of our study. He says, for in the gospel, in this good news, a righteousness, a right standing with God, a good enough for God, read yellow to me, a righteousness is revealed, a righteousness that is from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And he spends the rest of this letter explaining this concept of this righteousness that's from God and is by faith. He illustrates it. He, he defines it. He, uh, he applies it all the way through. And this is what we've seen as he opened up the book for those first three chapters. He just shows how the whole world is jacked up because of sin. And it doesn't matter how hard you try or how good you try to be or how closely to the law you try to follow it, it's not enough. That's where the good news comes in because then he starts and he talks about this righteousness, this right standing that is not ours, but it's from God. It's the righteousness of Jesus that is credited to our account. We are declared good enough, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that Jesus has done. And because of that, we are now justified through faith in Christ. And then in verse, chapters 6 through 8, he talks about how we're not just justified, but we're sanctified with his new life in the Spirit. And he talks about how the law, what, what, how the law fits into all this and the grace of God. 
And then in chapters 9 through 11, he talks about and explains how Israel and their rejection of the good news of Jesus Christ, how that fits in and how God even uses that to bring in wild olive branches like us and grafts us in. And he gets to this point with all of this deep theology of God's mercy and his goodness and grace, where his theology leads him to this doxology, this glory statement where he says, oh, oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God. How unsearchable his judgments in his paths beyond tracing out. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that God should give him anything, that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And that's where we left off last week. So in chapter 12, he makes a major transition and a major turn. Up to this point, he's given a lot of theology, deep theology, beautiful theology, mysterious theology. And at chapter 12, he turns and he takes all of that theology and he makes it applicable. He applies it to our lives. It becomes very personal and very practical for the rest of the book. It's kind of the so what, now what? And he shows this is the now what? And so today we're going to be uh, embarking into the beginning of Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bible, your tablet, your phone, any device you want to follow along, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is one of the must-see sites when you're journeying through Romans. In fact, uh, uh, William Barclay, I almost called him Charles Barclay, that's a totally different story. William Barclay said that Romans 12 is tantamount in its message to the Sermon on the Mount as far as Christian living is concerned. A few years ago, uh, Chip Ingram, some of you are familiar with Chip, wrote a book, gave a personal study as well as a small group curriculum and a whole church campaign called R12 of what does true spirituality look like. And in this book, we see where Paul says, I don't want you just to, to, to know the right things, to learn the right things. I want this right learning to become right living because what we believe determines how we behave. That this theology that became doxology, he says it doesn't stop there. It becomes biography, a part of our life story. That it's not just information, but that information becomes application, which leads to life transformation. And that's the goal. Here's the problem. When you have a theology that, that results in doxology, and it's supposed to impact our biography, our life, there's also a dichotomy. Because won't you agree with me? that you can believe something wholeheartedly and yet have it not affect you personally. Let me give you a, a hypothetical case in point. Hypothetical, purely hypothetical. Let's say, hypothetically, that the fair came to town. And with the fair came vendors and fair food. And I can believe to the core of my being that fair food is unhealthy food. I can believe that it is bad for you. I can believe that it is unnecessary calories, cholesterol, it'll affect your blood pressure, it, it will make you die younger, that you should not consume this kind of food. I can believe that deep fried cheese curds should not be consumed. I can believe that a hand-dipped king corn dog should not be consumed. I can believe and be convinced that a brick of fried curly fries from the, the Mount Baker toppers should never be purchased and consumed by anybody. I can believe that the breaded, deep-fried zucchini and onion rings from Piggly's should not be consumed. I can believe that a moo witch, that a funnel cake with strawberries, that, that um, the puffer cheese and that uh, the kettle corn should not be eaten. I can believe that with all of my heart. And I can go to that hypothetical fair two or three times in a week and eat all of it. 
hypothetically. So I believe one thing, but it may not change my behavior. And we see this in all areas of life. We believe we should eat less and exercise more. We believe we should floss more. We believe we ought to spend more time in the Bible and less binge watching on Netflix. We believe we ought to save more and spend less, getting less debt. We believe those things, but it doesn't necessarily equate to a changed lifestyle. And Paul comes along and he says, listen, all of this theology, I want you to have right thinking. I want you to have right learning. I want you to have right theology. But if it doesn't make its way into your life, it doesn't mean anything. It's got to transform your life. And so we're going to be looking at this, and we're not even actually going to be able to go very deep into Romans chapter 12. We're only going to be looking at two verses. These are very familiar verses to some of you, but again, these are must-see verses when you're touring Romans. And, and in, in these two verses, we are going to go painfully slow through them, sometimes word by word, and here's my fear and here's the danger that I hope that we can avoid. Sometimes you can dissect something so, so small that you dissect the very life out of it. And I don't want to take this living word of God and dissect the life out of it. So to hopefully help us with that, I want to start and I want us to just look at Look at these two verses in their entirety, and then we'll go back through kind of word by word and see if we can come somewhere to how it applies to us. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Father, your word is living and active. And I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that today the truths contained in these two verses will change our lives for your glory. I pray it in your name. Paul starts off and he says, therefore, therefore. Anytime you're reading scripture and you see the word therefore, you need to stop and ask yourself, what's it there for? Because there's a purpose for it. The word therefore means that you're in the middle of something. Like, like you never start a conversation, therefore. Therefore comes after something. It's, it's like, like in the spring of the year when our clocks spring forward and some of you forget, and so you come to church an hour, hour and 10 minutes late, um, and you walk in, and I'm getting, and I say, and so I'll close with this. You realize, this is the best Sunday of my life. And then you realize, I missed a whole bunch of this sermon. So if you just come in where it says, therefore, and you start there, you missed a whole bunch. When he says, therefore, therefore looks backward and forward. It's this hinge. It's this trans, transition. It's this, it's this thing that, that, that links these two together. You know, whereas chapters 1 through 11, therefore chapters 12 through 16. He says all the things we've, we've talked about, all the theology that has led up to this point, therefore, this is what I want you to do with it. Now we're going to change, we're going to apply that, therefore, and he launches into this. Therefore, he says, he says, I urge you, I urge you brothers, in view of God's mercy. And that word urge, it's like, it's not a, a mild suggestion. It's not a, here's a thought to contemplate. It's not, hey, here's an idea I'm not really sure about. There's this, there's this intensity where, where he's saying, I exhort you. I implore you. 
I beg of you. I mean, there's this, this intensity with this. He says, I urge you, brothers. Now, keep in mind, this letter was written to churches. These were people who had been redeemed by the righteousness of Christ. He's not talking to the world. He's not talking to non-Christians. He's talking to the church. He calls them brothers. In two weeks, we're in chapter 15. We'll see the difference between when he talks to brothers and when he talks about neighbors, which is a far-reaching far um, group. But he says, brothers, you know, those of you who have experienced the grace of Jesus, who've had the righteousness of Jesus credited to your account, this is who I'm talking to. I urge you, and then this phrase, in view of God's mercies. This becomes the key phrase for not only what we're going to look at today, but for the rest, for the rest of the, the entire book, in view of God's mercies. Like because, because you've received this righteousness from God, by faith. That's the mercies of God. His mercies have been bountiful to you. The grace, the mercies that he showed to the Jewish, those who are by grace, are part of the remnant of the chosen. He says that's because of God's mercy. For the non-Jewish, the Gentiles like us, these wild olive shoots, he says it's only by God's mercy that you get to be grafted into the tree and a part of the family. It's only because of his mercy that you can be saved, that you can be right with God, that you can have this by faith and never lose sight of that. Always keep that in view. Never forget the mercies of God. That phrase becomes the key, the lens, the filter through which we have to look at the rest of the book in view of God's mercies. And so he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer, to offer your bodies. Now the word offer, the fact that we are offering, that's an act of the will. Follow me on this. When you offer something, that means it was not demanded or required of you. It's not an obligation. It's something far deeper than that. It's not, well, this is a, a repayment to somehow compensate. No, no, no. This comes from somewhere deeper where there's this offering that's like, this isn't required of me. I am choosing to do this. That's what an offering is. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to choose to offer, and then he says, your bodies. Now give me a, a little bit of time to, to spend on this word, because there's a lot to it. He's talking about our physical bodies, flesh, bones, blood, all of our bodies. There are other times when Paul speaks of the body, and he's talking, you know, like in an analogy or metaphor, the body of Christ is gathering that, that together works. But he says, I'm talking about your physical body. And when he talks about this, I think there's a lot in their minds that maybe we don't kind of pick up on because there was some faulty thinking about bodies that led to some, even some heresy, some faulty theology and some faulty living. Now I'm going to give you some, a little bit of, of church history and some, a, a little bit of some of the heresies that he was fighting. Don't get hung up on this. And I'm going to give you some words that you don't have to write down. Don't worry about memorizing them. But this faulty thinking about the physical body there came this idea of docetism and Gnosticism, which led to asceticism or hedonism. Now, let me explain all that. Docetism was this idea that there are these two things. There's the spirit realm, and then there's the material realm. The spirit realm is good. It's holy. It's righteous. It's, 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 all, uh, it's perfect. The physical, the material that realm is tainted, it's, it's con contaminated, it's cursed, it's got sin. And so these two cannot interact. 
So there's this spiritual realm, and then there's this material one. One is good, one is bad. One is perfect, one is, is, is evil and cursed. So the, the mindset that came from this, and this was the heresy, since Jesus was the perfect son of God, the idea was that there's no way that this perfect, holy, righteous specimen named Jesus could be connected with something that is cursed and condemned and contaminated like a physical body. So the belief was Jesus didn't actually have a physical body. When he walked here on the earth, it was an illusion. He was there in spirit, but that wasn't really a flesh and bones body. And so it was kind of this divine hologram. In fact, they would go so far as to say that those who believed in this docetism, that Jesus, when he walked along a dusty path on the Judean hillside or along the beach of the, of the Sea of Galilee, he would leave no footprints because it wasn't really a body. It was just this image, a very good image, albeit, but still, this image. Some of you will remember when Master Poe said to Kwai Cheng Kane, Walk across the rice paper, grasshopper. Anyone remember that, Kung Fu? Walk across the rice paper and leave no footprints. Walk lightly. Well, in the docetism, Jesus would have no problem because he never left footprints, which really messes you up if you like that footprints poem. You know, you've got it on your wall. I was walking, I had this dream, we're walking along, and, well, shoot, there was only one set of footprints, that I was, and then there was none, and it just messes the whole thing up. The biggest problem, though, had nothing to do with footprints. It had to do, if Jesus did not have a physical body, what happened on the cross? And this is where the major heresy came in, that Jesus was not crucified. He did not die for our sins. And so Paul is saying, listen, you got to get your theology right on this. Well, not only was it this docetism and the heresy about Jesus, but this Gnosticism about the same concept with us in our physical bodies, that there's a reality that we are flesh, bones, and blood, but there's also this spiritual side. And if the spiritual is good and the material, the physical is bad, if this is perfect and holy and righteous and this is cursed and condemned and contaminated, then it led to one of two extremes. Some people said, I'm locked inside this contaminated, wretched thing called a body and it would lead to an ascetic lifestyle where there was this, um, try, uh, try, the mortification of the flesh where they would punish their body, they would starve themselves, they would fast to un unhealthy levels. There was this self-flagellation with whips, uh, there, there was this, this mortification of the flesh, there was self-mutilation, and later there were even a group of people called stylites who would live on the top of a pole and take, uh, take all human comforts and all uh, any kind of pleasures away from. Their disciples would send up water and, and bare minimum food. They would send down their excrement. And they would live on these poles, hundreds of feet in the air, for decades, uh, devoid of any kind of physical pleasure. And their thinking was, mortification of my flesh gives a greater justification of my spirit, which goes completely contrary to everything that Paul's been teaching. The other extreme was someone says, well, I have this evil, rotten flesh that can't be redeemed, and I'm a part of it, and it doesn't really matter because my spirit is good, then I ought to, with this body of mine, live it like it's stolen. Every day's Fat Tuesday. Eat, drink, and be merry. Let's self-indulge because it doesn't matter because my spirit's perfect and pure and clean, so I can do whatever I want. Now, here's a question for you. For the common person, which of those extremes do you think that they would lean toward? living on the top of a pole for 30 years or partying like it's 1999 every night. And so he says, listen, with your body, your body, you know, this is to be offered. 
Now, this is something that, that he's already mentioned to them. Because he wants them to get, to get clear on even their theology of their body. In Romans chapter 6, if you were here earlier in the summer, he, he referred to this. Romans 6, he says, Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. How we treat our bodies, how we handle our bodies, what we do with our sexuality, with what we do with our, our diet and our health. He says, your body. Now, when he's writing this letter, most people believe he's in Corinth. And if you're familiar with ancient Corinth, there were amazing temples there, pagan temples. And there on the Acropolis, there was the, the, uh, uh, the uh, Parthenon, this temple to Athena. Just, I mean, it was like one of the wonders of the world. But there was also a temple to Apollo. And there was also a, a, a temple to Aphrodite, all these Greek gods and goddesses. And some deplorable things that happened in these pagan temples, especially in the temple to Aphrodite. Uh, some believe that there were up to 1,000 temple prostitutes, and part of the rituals that took place in there was sexual immorality. Now, you can imagine that he's living in the context of these temples. And, and, so, and I know this is going a little bit out of the Romans deal, but when he writes to that church in Corinth, he says these words, um, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, there it is again, with that, then this, honor God with your body. So he's writing this, this group in Rome, and he says to them, listen, I, I'm, I'm urging you, I'm begging you, in, in, in view of God's mercy, to offer, willingly offer your bodies. And he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. Now again, in the pagan world, very familiar with pagan sacrifices. In the Jewish world, very familiar with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And he says, but I want your body to be a living sacrifice. You wonder, what came to their mind? Well, those who were steeped in the Old Testament, uh, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, probably thought about when Abraham went to offer Isaac this living sacrifice. And if you recall, you say, well, that was Abraham sacrificing his son. But if you recall, when we studied this a couple of uh, months ago, last summer, if you recall, at the time, Isaac was probably in his late teens, early 20s, and Abraham as well into his hundreds. I think Isaac could have taken him, could have outrun him, could have wrestled him down, didn't have to. Isaac willingly submits himself to his father's desire and is offered as a sacrifice. More keenly, though, is what that points to when Jesus offers himself to his father's will and offers himself as a sacrifice. And he offers him, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down and I'll take it back up, but this is something that I offer. And he points us to this picture of Jesus offering his life. He says, but, but not a sacrifice like a one time and a death. We're talking about a living sacrifice, a sacrifice that you offer every single day because it's in view of God's mercies and his mercies are new every day and every day we offer our lives as a living sacrifice. And maybe, maybe he was thinking of those words that Jesus spoke of what it meant to follow him when Jesus said in Luke, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily 
and follow me. And then this paradoxical statement, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. That you would offer your body as this living sacrifice, just as Jesus did. And that every day, because his mercies are new, you would daily offer your life, and that's the way you will truly find life. So he implores them, I want you to do this. In their understanding of the sacrificial system, especially in the Old Testament, they knew that there were times that that sacrifice, what they were sacrificing, would be qualified. When God would say, this is what I want you to give, and it would give very specific qualifications. A one-year-old male lamb without blemish. Here it is. Or the first fruits from this. And likewise, he says, this sacrifice has some qualifications as well. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Now, remember last week, if you're here, we were talking about the difference between being chosen and being choice, and this idea of chosen means to be set apart for God's purposes. And I said, hold on to this, because we'll come back to it this week, which we are. The idea of something being consecrated, something being holy, means that it's set apart for God's purposes. The priest was consecrated holy, set apart for God's purposes. The instruments in the tabernacle were set apart. They're holy. They're consecrated, set apart for God's purposes. The Levitical tribe, the, the nation of Israel, he says, now, now, now. You are to present your body as something that is set apart for God's purposes. Now, that changes everything. This is a daily thing that you do. That every day you set yourself aside and say, my life and my body will be used for God's purposes. And not only that, that it would be holy and pleasing to God. Again, remember the context that they're living in. Think about the context we're living in. We may not use the same words, but in Roman context, hedonism was the highest good. This idea that, that pleasure, comfort is the greatest goal to shoot for in life. And, and they were surrounded by that with this self-indulgent lifestyle that they would just live, you know, just all out just to please themselves. In fact, um, a, a little sidebar, but I find this interesting. Josephus, a, uh, a Jewish uh, non-biblical historian, speaks about Herod the Great and his death and how horrible his death is. Modern doctors read the account that Josephus put of Herod the Great, of his death, and they come to this conclusion. Herod the Great was probably extremely obese and had diabetes. He probably had cancer of the bowels. He probably had sclerosis of the liver, as well as either gonorrhea or syphilis. Why? Because he had lived a life of hedonism, this unrestrained pleasure life, and it had come back now to give him this horrible death. That's the context. Now, we may not use that, that term or give that kind of, uh, you know, unreigned pleasure, but here's the reality. He says, I want you to live your life in such a way that the first question you ask is not, is this pleasing to me? But the first question you ask is, is this pleasing to God? Is this is what, what, what he's created and called me to be? And Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says, and find out, find out what pleases the Lord, to live for his pleasure. So he gets to the end of all that, and, and he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, so important. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, some of your translations will say, this is your reasonable service, your reasonable worship, your spiritual service, some translation like that. The word that, that's translated a couple different ways 
is the word logicon. And logicon is where we get our word logical. So this idea of this logicon worship, I'm going to refer today for just a moment, follow me on this, as Vulcan worship. Some of you know where I'm going with this. If you're a Trekkie, you know the Vulcans. We remember Spock, some of us, from our childhood. There were some distinctions about Vulcans. Pointy ears and eyebrows. But the other distinction was Vulcans always operated out of a purely objective, rational, and logic mindset. They were completely devoid of emotion. I'm not saying here that our worship should be devoid of emotion. Follow me on this. What I'm saying is this. When you begin to look at this in view of God's mercy, it's almost like Spock saying, well, of course, it's only logical. You know, to live any other way would be highly logical, illogical, Captain. I mean, it's just like this Vulcan worship. Here's how it, it plays out. Only in view of what God has done, only in view is this logical. To, to offer your body as a sacrifice, the only way that makes sense is if you remember how merciful God has been to you. And in view, if you, in view of how merciful God has been, this is only logical. It, it might seem like it's the same thing, but it's not. It says, when you remember what God has done for you, then it makes sense. Now I understand why I would offer my life. And when I see that, then I think any other response would be completely illogical, irrational, ungrateful. It would, it would be unthinkable. Because any excuse or any justification or rationalization of why we shouldn't offer our body to, to God in view of this, wait for it, is eclipsed, okay, got it, by what God has done for us already. I think about it this way. When I was a kid, my brother and I, we were, we were tasked with mowing the lawn at our, in our yard as part of just being a part of the Marvel household. And we lived next door to the Milners. Mr. Milner was a college professor, and he had a son, Doug, who was my age, and another son, Glenn. And my brother and I sometimes would, would switch off who's mowing, and sometimes we would mow together, like one would mow, and then one would, when the bag got full, would take it up on the hill and dump it and bring it back, and then we'd switch off. This happened to be one of those days where we were doing this together. So we were mowing the por portion of the lawn that was right next to the Milners, and Mr. Milner was out there, and probably just to, to connect with these young kids that live next door, he came over and he said, um, what does your dad do to get you to get out here and mow the lawn? And I'm thinking, okay, that's just, you know, kind of like, and I was like, well, whatever. We just, and my brother said, well, Mr. Milner, I, the way I see it is after all that my parents have done for me, it's the least that we can do for them. <laughs> and I looked at him and I thought, Jerry, you're an idiot. Now, while what he said is true, I don't think he really believed that because he complained about mowing the lawn. And Paul comes along and says, listen, after all God has done for us, this is the least that we can do. It's like our, our logical act of worship. And keep this in mind. If this is our logical act of worship, how we live our life every day, we have got to expand our understanding of what worship means. Worship is not just what we do for two or three songs in this room. Worship is how we live our lives every single day. And he says, and this is the logical way you worship. See, that's verse one. That's why we're not going to make it through chapter 12 today. But we're going to go on. Because even though this was written 2,000 years ago, it is as relevant today as it ever was. Verse two, he starts off this way. And do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Eugene Peterson in the message, he says, don't let this world squeeze you into its mold. Like, you don't have to be like everybody else. 
Which really begs the question then for us, and this is not a rhetorical question, and do not give me the Sunday school answer. I just want you to think about this. Who decides how you live your life? In fact, who makes the call for what's right and wrong in your life? In fact, how is the bar for your life set of how you do life, how you handle your body, how you handle your finances, your morality, your worldview? Where does that come? How is that determined? Who influences that? I mean, I'm I'm not asking you to answer me. I want you to think about this. And don't give the Sunday school answer. Really, who determines that for you? You say, well, kind of what's acceptable in our family, which might be great if your family is built on great morals and and biblical standards. But maybe you come from a family that all kinds of things are acceptable. Is that what sets the bar for you? Well, maybe you say, well, it's kind of what's acceptable in my circle of friends. That's wonderful if your friends are building their lives on biblical foundation. But maybe not all your friends are. In fact, I hope not all your friends are. I hope that you have friends with people that are far from God. Okay, well, maybe it's, it's what's acceptable in our culture. And he says, like, yeah, I'm not sure if that's the best one. And maybe some of you are saying, well, here's the answer. If it's legal. <laughs> well, that's good. And hear me out. I want you all to be law-abiding citizens. I really do. But if your standard for what's right and wrong and what, how do you live your life is, is it legal? The bar is set pretty low. Because think about this. The laws of our state are there so our society can get along, but it's like the minimum level to keep you out of jail. Let me go on a small rant here. If the bar was set by, is it legal? And I I do promise you this one's hypothetical. Then, and I'll use me as an example. Then I can, I can choose to never attend church, never read my Bible or pray. I can consult psychics, tarot cards, horoscopes, tea leaves. I can explore and experience Wiccan and Satanic and any kind of religious rituals. I can become married and divorced every single year and cohabitate with a partner in between those marriages. I can be a lust-filled pervert, immersing myself in pornography, always swiping right on Tinder and Grindr. I can engage in unprotected, promiscuous sexual activity with multiple partners of any gender, of any marital status, as frequently as I want, as long as they're at least 18 years of age and consenting, I can contract any number of sexually transmitted diseases, command, demand, and encourage and pay for any number of abortions. I can drink alcohol from morning to night and live in a drunken stupor as long as I don't drive. I can smoke, chew, vape, and blaze incessantly. I can drink sugary caffeinated beverages, eat to gluttonous levels leading to obesity and disease. I can swear, cuss, curse, slander, gossip, disrespect, and flip off those who offend me. I can be filled with pride, selfishness, greed, hatred, racism, misogyny, bitterness, anger, jealousy, and covetousness. I can never give to the poor, never save for the future, go into unhealthy levels of debt, spend every spare penny on lotto tickets and casinos. I can live in risky behavior of bungee jumping, base jumping, wingsuit flying, skydiving, even entering a pinto into the demolition derby. And I can do all that and vote for candidates of the party that, don't, that you don't support and never break one law of this state. Somebody's saying, can I get a copy of the list? (laughs) Listen, whether you're a Christ follower or not, you've got to admit that if your bar is set by is it legal, the bar is set pretty low. And you can live a pretty disgusting, pretty immoral, pretty distasteful life in our society and still be completely legal. That's not the bar. Our bar is set much higher. 
Alan Wolf, who's a sociologist, he said this, in every aspect of religious life, American faith has met American culture, and American culture has triumphed. Paul says, no, no. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. Don't let the culture triumph. Keep in mind that it's by the mercies of God that you've been given a new status. You have been credited, declared righteous with the righteousness of Jesus, and that's only because of the mercy of God. You've been given a new standing. You're a son or daughter. You've been grafted in. You're a branch. You're a part of the family tree of God, and it's only by the mercies of God. Because you have a new status and a new standing, then live at a new standard. It's only logical, he says. This is the way we worship our God. And it's not just what we don't do, it's what we do. He says, but be transformed, changed by the renewing of your mind. Now he says, it's not just the body we're talking about. Now we're talking about attitudes, talking about motives, talking about our worldview, and talking about our beliefs, talking about all of who we are to be transformed. You know, every week when you come in here, you get a, a copy of the link. And at the bottom of the notes, if you ever take notes, there's this little cartoon of a brain. I don't know if you ever checked this out. And it says, changing your mind, Romans 12, 2. Some of you have never paid attention to that. The whole concept of that little brain there is that we believe if nothing else, our desire, if nothing else, there's a lot more, but if nothing else, that you would at least take one verse and let that wash over your mind and begin to change how you think, begin to change how you view things, begin to let your worldview and your values and your morals and your priorities and your motives be shaped by God's word, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why we want you to not only read and study and not just know, but to delight in the word of God, to apply it to your lives, that there would be this transformation because it's not just about jumping through hoops and keeping rules, right? It's not just this external thing. It's an internal transformation, not just external conformity, but internal transformation. That's why Jesus would say to the Pharisees who kept all the rules on the outside, you're like whitewashed tombs, you look great, but inside you're filled with dead men's bones and everything unclean. That there's something deeper. And when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. To think the way he does. In Isaiah, God says, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. And you know what this, this transformation by the renewing of our mind is? It's taking our ways and our thoughts and bringing them more into the likeness of God's ways and God's thoughts, not more into the, the world's ways and the world's thoughts. That it would be transformed. That we would think and see things the way God does. So he gets to the very end. And he says, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you think the ways and the will of our culture and world are ever contrary to the ways and the will of God? It's not a trick question. It's a pretty simple question, actually. Yeah. Do you think the ways and the will of your community, your friends, your family sometimes are contrary to the way and the will of God? Yeah. Do you think your own ways and your own will is sometimes contrary to the will of God? And if you say no, then you're better than Jesus 
Because at a very difficult point, Jesus said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Not what I want, but what you want. And the only way you can ever say that in those difficult times is when you trust that your heavenly Father, who is always good, always righteous, always holy, that his will is always good and always pleasing, maybe not in the immediate, and always perfect. We would live according to his will, saying, not mine, but yours be done. So in these first two verses of Romans 12, he just lays this foundation, says, here's the lens. Always keep your focus on what God has done for you. And because of that now, it just is logical that you would daily offer your bodies as this living offering, this worship, this sacrifice to God, becoming less like this world and more like, like his son, Jesus Christ. And from that, and this is where I want to challenge you this week, spend some time, not just reading it once, but spend some time in Romans chapter 12 and Romans chapter 13. He says, because with that in mind, then he talks about how you operate in the body of believers, in the church. Then he begins to talk about how you love other people. He begins to talk about how you endure hardships, how you keep your spiritual fervor alive. He begins to talk about how to love and bless those who persecute you and your enemies. He talks about how to submit to authorities in the government. And then he circles back around in the back half of chapter 13, again, about how we live our lifestyles with our bodies. And he comes to the end of chapter 13 and he says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, rather, and this is so beautiful, because every day, every, every day God's mercies are new and every day we're offering our bodies and every day we get dressed. And he says, rather, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Think about how do I live my life? How do I operate in a way that is holy and pleasing to God? They say, well, now we're kind of getting back into this. We're earning this and this legalism. No, no, no. This isn't about what we can do for God. It's all about what God has already done for us. And in response to that, in view of God's mercy. You see, the motivation is gratitude for grace. Because God has been so gracious to us and continues to be so gracious. And the inspiration is his mercies in view of all the things that he's done. By his mercies, we're given a new status of the righteousness of Christ. By his mercies, we're given a new standing in sons and daughters in the family tree of God. And in response to that, in view of those mercies... We have a new standard. See, the theology should result in doxology. But that doxology needs to make its way into biography, which is our life, our story, without dichotomy. So here's my challenge for you. Two things. One, this week, the next seven days, spend time in Romans 12 and 13 and just learn what does it mean for me to live my life as a holy, pleasing sacrifice to God. The second thing, is to do all of this and to keep God's mercies in view. And today, the second thing we're going to practice, because 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave us a practice that would remind us of the mercies of God, remind us of one whose body was broken, whose body was sacrificed, whose blood was spilled. 
And he took the bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup. He says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. And today we're going to end our time together by remembering and celebrating communion. And I would just say um, that we have an open communion policy here at Cornwall. What that means is if you have that new status and that new standing, if you've been redeemed by Christ, you're welcome to participate. If not, first of all, I'd say, why not join the family? But if not, or if you feel like I just, I just, it's, you're not ready for this or not right, or whatever, just simply pass this by. Don't make a big deal of it. We won't. But we do ask that you would respect this. And I'm going to ask the, the ushers to come forward and serve us as the team leads us in this song. One more instruction. As you take the, the cup and the bread, I want you to think about this. And then when you prepare to take it, I want you to whisper these words in view of God's mercies. In view of God's mercies. In view of God's mercies. And we'll sing and I'll close this in prayer.